Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. This is the second in a two-part interview with Charles Mann, author of 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. If you are tuning in for the first time on this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and listen to episode 95 for the first part of our conversation. I think I might have mentioned that that uh, your book was recommended to me by Dr. Barry Perryman, who's a range ecologist at University of Nevada, Reno. And uh, we had been discussing, he's done a lot of research on uh, cheatgrass and some other invasive annual grasses and, you know, how they were sort of like these diseases, you know, without, without precedent in this, on this continent and, and largely without any uh, control mechanisms. Uh, but he, he's also written a bit, uh, quite a bit about uh, what he called the pristine management ter- paradigm, uh, which may have been also a reference to uh, William Denniman's uh, pristine myth. The idea that whatever was here before Europeans came was, uh, you know, an, an ecological nirvana. And, and that if humans would just get out of the way and let it go, that the ecosystem uh, ecosystems all over the place would, would go back to what we might call, you know, a, a climax state in ecological terms. And in the, most of the Western U.S. and in most semi-arid and arid ecosystems, even the idea of a climax state has now largely been discarded with the idea that, you know, whatever the plant community is now, it will follow some successional trajectory, but, but not always the same one, just based on whatever influences happen to, um, happen to it in the future. But this idea that, that everything that the Europeans encountered was a pristine wilderness uh, likely is, is not the case. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there is an idea that, uh, um, is there sort of bundled up a couple of ideas and, uh, um, you know, many of them with really praiseworthy origins, they were just sort of mistaken. Um, and one is that the native people were sort of like the perfect Sierra club tourists. Um, you know, they lived lightly on the land and they didn't touch anything and left no trace. trace, Right. And, um, so therefore that the Americas when Europeans arrived were for all intents and purposes, um, a wilderness over the vast majority of the area. Um, and and if you think about it though, that's a really strange thing to imagine because people like to mess around. (laughs) That's what people Mm -hmm. do. Um, and why should the people of the Americas be like nobody else anywhere? Um, and, uh, you know, no, nowhere else do people do nothing, um, around them, build nothing, construct nothing. Uh, why should that be true here? And the answer is it wasn't. Um, and in fact, you were dealing with not only the, almost the opposite, which is people who were on a world scale, um, unusually sophisticated, um, 
you know, by and large, unusually sophisticated managers of landscapes who had developed entire bodies of knowledge um, that were about how to shape landscapes in a way that made them more comfortable and useful for people. And, um, you know, an example of that uh, was a few years ago. This is after I wrote the book. It's a involved in a project I'm doing now, um, I visited far northern California where the Klamath River is. And there's the Karuk and the Yurok and the Hoopa and the Klamath. There's a bunch of people there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're telling me that um, their ceremonies are, well, they're religious, but they're also more like um, ways of codifying ecological instructions. Hmm. Um, you know, you, we, we do this for the fall, you know, the ceremonies will say, essentially, we do this for the following reason. And they, they are ways of, you know, in, in, in unlike written textbooks of, of, you know, of telling stories about knowledge that it makes it easy to remember for the next generation. Right. It's a cultural liturgy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you have, um, you know, the same thing was true in Europe in the you know, 14th century. If you go to the stained glass windows of a place like Chartres, they were used as visual exhibits and, you know, and together with the songs to instruct people in Christian doctrine about how to live. Mm-hmm. And these uh, ceremonies were about how to maintain the landscape and left to its own devices. The landscape of the northwest, of the, you know, California becomes, um, you know, this climax vegetation, this empire of tall trees, but they didn't like that. They liked the, you know, they liked lower successional states. And so they would, um, and they also didn't like the giant wildfires. And so they did this constant amount of um, burning to knock back the landscape, open it up and to create the kinds of um, plants that they like. So they like uh, oaks because they have acorns. They liked um, hazel mm-hmm. for not only for hazelnuts, but the hazel was used to make these um, amazing baskets. Uh, this is one of the centers of basket culture. Um, these extraordinary baskets that they um, make uh, up there. Just totally, there was this big f- fad in the 1880s for uh, California baskets that, that came from there, and they're sold hmm. for their <laughs> the poor people over there were ripped off from their baskets and. So this, you know, this the whole point is all of this stuff and the salmon that were um, that was a principal food stuff were managed by um, in these ceremonies, which conveyed knowledge about how to create um, landscapes that were favorable for the oak and the hazel and the salmon and the other um, species that they liked. And so there weren't I mean, they did grow some things, tobacco and so forth, but they, mainly the entire landscape was a farm. Mm-hmm. And you could have a small amount of effort um, at various points of the year and have an entire food supply. And the same thing happened over here in the East Coast where, um, you know, when there was uh, fires and so forth, they managed in succession. And so, you know, the estimates are at the time of um, the pilgrims that uh, one out of every four um, trees in the eastern forest was a chestnut which is way more than their natural distribution. And it was mm-hmm. because chestnuts are these incredibly fecund plants. Uh, a large chestnut, you know, the, the, the sort, of, sort of the rule of thumb is a large chestnut provided enough calories for to feed a family of four for a year. Wow. Um, now, nobody would want to do that. Nobody would want to eat chestnuts 24-7. But it gives, you know, and you just did a little bit of burning, and there you had your food. And so then, you, you know, if the deer didn't show up or something, you always had what you needed. And that was their view of this, that you have these staples that are sort of growing quietly in the background, and then you go after the treats. Right. And you, they're able to maintain that polyculture through a much less 
intensive kind of management than right. tilling and planting and right. weeding. Exactly. And, yeah. Right. So they, they, they kind of looked at Europeans tilling and planting and weeding thinking like, why are you doing that? <laughs> Right. It expends more energy than you gain back from it. Right. It's insanely inefficient. <laughs> Why right. is your technology so primitive? Right. And uh, so um, that was, uh, um, you know, that was, a, again, a completely different view on, on, on how to manage the landscape. And here, you know, now let me that's all fact as far as I, I know. Now, let me mm. get into opinion um, where I'm speaking to you from is Massachusetts. And we have a problem that's coming up, which is that we've got a number of exotic pests and diseases. Um, ash blight, emerald ash borers wiping out the ashes. Uh, you know, um, the woody delgid is going after, um, I think it's hickory. We have these imported diseases. And so we're having a lot of dead trees that are coming up and kind of like California with, a, with oak blight and the other diseases so we're going to have some real serious fire problems um and yet you know there's no incentive for all this wood and in, in you know private and state hands to log this uh stuff and, re and replant it but if you could replant it with chestnuts and uh, create a market mm -hmm. for that you might have an incentive you know and watched how they did that because that's exactly what native people did um you might be able to come up with a way of reforesting these um in such a way that it wouldn't be just a complete drain on the public treasury and i like chestnuts so they'd be nice to have too sure and diversify agriculture um in the sense chestnuts are incredibly rich nutritionally and so you could use them for animal feed just as well as you can use you know all the other things that we grow for animal feed it's kind of crazy that in california on um, you know fallow they're they're taking alfalfa and shipping it over to the middle west um when you know the middle west could grow chestnuts um and and get the same you know nutritional equivalent but all of this is just again me ed editorializing and sort of talking about why i think it's worthwhile learning about this because it opens up possibilities for us mm -hmm. and would you say that all of the different indian groups across north america were having a pretty large influence on their on the natural environment uh in on a large scale i would say um well, all is 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 hard because there's, for all I know, there's some group somewhere that I just don't know about. This is, but every, right. every case that I am aware of, yeah, yeah. every or most yeah. or every case I'm aware of, something like that. I, I think in the article uh, Nature Rebounds, Bill Denovan says he makes the point, um, I guess, refuting the idea that all these groups were primarily hunter-gatherers, that, that even if they were only hunter-gatherers, which is maybe a, a demeaning opinion that we hold of them, that still would have pretty quickly exterminated all the game in a really wide swath. You know, if all they're doing is killing deer and buffalo, you're going to run yeah. out of deer and buffalo pretty quick and then you got to go somewhere else. But if there's enough people occupying the somewhere else, that's not really a possibility. Exactly. And so people very rapidly learn that uh, because people are observant. Right. And so we know that and this has been, you know, this again, this is where indigenous knowledge is. It's, it's got this horrible acronym tech, T-E-K, traditional ecological knowledge, mm. um, like, you know, high tech. You know, right. Um, right. It, uh, I'm making air quotes with all this. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that they learned is that buffalo, bison, really like um, the first growth that springs up after a prairie fire. 
And um, if you do that, then um, they preferentially seek it out. And there's lots of studies mm -hmm. showing that this is the case. I mean, it was just learned by observation. And then, you know, in the, in the 21st century, people are burning areas and watching where the buffalo go. And sure enough. Um, but the point is that by strategically burning, you can guide where buffalo herds go. And um, you can do this and this, the buffalo themselves have all kinds of effects on the, and so you can, um, one of the things that you want to do if you're interested in buffalo is to prevent succession, you know, to knock backstage. So you do this burning, um, prairie uh, grasses uh, with their very deep roots, um, survive the burning, um, seedlings of trees, um, you know, have much shallower roots because they're just um, young and they die. And so you can kill off the trees, um, uh, stimulate growth that brings in buffalo. You, you know, it's a it's a magic thing that you, that you can do. And so um, estimates are that the you know, when the Europeans saw the Great Plains, they were, you know, 30 percent, 40 percent, some number like that, bigger than they would, quote unquote, naturally have been because of native burning. Hmm. So what was the in 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 North America, what was the timeline of the the you know demise, the decimation of these groups through disease? Uh, we've we've talked around some of those dates. I'm just wanting to kind of piece together the macro scale timeline of of when disease came through and then you had this corresponding flush in both flora and fauna that yes. people like Charles Muir are responding to. Yeah, exactly. The uh, so, um, yes. What what, what um, so what ha it happened differently in different places, but um, there is a two that we know of really huge um, epidemics. And one was in the began in the 1520s in central Mexico, and um, a guy named Dobbins kind of tracked it, and um, it went south, jumped across, and went into um, Peru and. Um, and caused just havoc there. And that was smallpox. And that led directly to, in both cases, to the Spanish conquest. Um, there was another giant epidemic um, that began in this, that began in the 18th century um, and uh, came from Mexico City and went up through um, the middle of North America and into Canada. And, it's, and so that was the two sort of that we know of really big events. Then there are lots and lots of smaller um, ep epidemics, um, and beginning in the 16, you know, 17 in New England, and then the, you know, spreading along the um, Atlantic coast. Um, meanwhile, in along California, in the uh, I think it was in the 18th century, you had these these Jesuits who would you know force Native peoples to live in big clusters around the missions and those became hotbeds of disease. And mm -hmm. so that was in the um, early 18th century in, in um, California. So, you know, you get this patchwork effect where bad things happened in, um, in, in different places. But as Denovan spoke, what, what happened was that for the first time when people stopped, man died, they stopped managing the landscape. And for the first time there wasn't, the creation of actual wilderness um, and that, you know, to an extent, what the Europeans saw when they were pushing in to these um, places that had recently um, been emptied by uh, disease was 
a wilderness, but one that they themselves had created in the most awful way. Mm-hmm. And and I guess our the description of wilderness mostly meant a pretty rapid trend toward forestation or afforestation in a lot of locations. Yeah. And um, so there is, you know, fairly rapid uh, afforestation, but it was uh, maybe we shouldn't say wilderness. What they thought was wilderness was actually just feral. <laughs> and, um, right. and so, right. And so, you know, some pretty strange um, things happened. Um, and what led to by the end of the 19th century was some just cataclysmic forest fires of the kind that we're seeing now. Um, and unfortunately, the nascent, you know, just born U.S. Forest Service and the uh, just born science of forestry took exactly the wrong lessons from this, um, which was that, uh, you know, we need to maximize timber. And the way to do that is to stamp out fire. Mm-hmm. And um, so they, as we are now learning, they inadvertently created the conditions, you know, to have really cat- catastrophic, catastrophic fire. <laughs> fires. Yeah. Uh-huh. Huh. Yeah, a lot of uh, the this podcast has mostly been focused on semi-arid rangelands, but there's a lot of places around the world that would be considered rangelands that look different than, you know, say the shrub steppe in much of in much of the West. Mm-hmm. I actually grew up in Arkansas and had never heard the term rangeland, but I just by, you know, as an example here, the area that was behind our house on a, mm-hmm. a small ranch property, you know, we, we bush hogged it periodically because if you didn't, it would take about, it felt like three weeks before the forest just takes over. Yeah. You know, you have this very rapid proliferation of various kinds of, of woody plants. And if those aren't held in check by, mowing, burning, grazing by something that will eat them, something, it, it extremely rapidly uh, explodes in a, a diversity of plants and would look within just a few years like it uh, had never been managed in any way at all or manipulated right. by people. Exactly. And that's in that, you know, imagine that happening all over the Americas. Right. And, and in addition, um, that wild growth um, if uh, I'm not as familiar with Arkansas as I am here, but my God, is it hard to walk through? <laughs> it's full of bugs. It's just really a drag to be around. And so, uh, you know, so do you, you, you just for comfort's sake, you want to you, you want to get rid of it. I think you mentioned in the book as well that that malaria came from Europeans. I was yes. not aware of that. Okay, here's here's like malaria 101. Um, there are there's dozens and dozens of species of malaria and malaria is a single celled parasite um, that, uh, you know, gets into our, into our bloodstream, hides in um, red blood cells, um, multiplies like crazy, bursts out in a uh, coordinated thing, uh, coordinated assault where our body is flooded with billions or trillions of um, these uh, parasites. And there's so many of them that mosquitoes, that bite us during that time can pick up some of the um, parasite, even if they just take a drop of our blood, there'll be some of the parasites in it. And then they can um, go through another stage of life cycle and they can go and give it to somebody else. Um, The type of mosquito um, that transmits malaria is called the Anopheles mosquito. That's a genus. And so there's many, many species of it. Um, There's uh, three or four species um, in the Americas that are capable of transmitting 
um, uh, malaria. There's four mm -hmm. species of malaria that, uh, types of malaria that, um, affect people. Vivax was the one, um, that came into, um, Europe and, uh, it's more cold tolerant, um, than, uh, than the other, mm. um, than the other types. Um, let's see. Uh, there, the parasite is called, um, and the bad kind, the kind that we hear about in Africa is called falciparum. Hmm. And, um, so both of them invaded the, uh, Americas probably carried across by, um, sailors. And what can happen is in both vivax and falciparum, uh, the parasite can, you know, will come out and, you know, make you feel awful. And then it will retreat and hide out in the spleen for months or even years um, until it does this uh, attack again. So it's just a terrible, sneaky um, disease that's capable of um, of giving you a long respite that makes you think that you're not sick. Um, mm -hmm. And so one, so it came over in the bodies of um, Europeans and very quickly um, infested areas pretty much just south of um near of new york city down to uh florida and it was so common that when um people from colder climates like um england where northern england say where it was uh, rare would come to virginia they would have to go through a process known as seasoning which would meant that they would get sick for months um with uh malaria now the uh, falciparum, which comes from Africa, was brought over by African um, slaves and can't do as well over here, but infected um, uh, South America, Central America and the Caribbean and made life miserable for people over there. And so they were both terrible, terrible diseases. And one of the reasons for um, uh, slavery was that if you brought over Europeans, um, they would get uh, to work here, they would get sick from malaria and they have to go through the seasoning process. Whereas most Africans, uh, especially people in West Africa where slaves, in Central Africa where slaves um, typically came from, um, ha have one or another of a genetic mutations that makes malaria less bad for them. They were mm -hmm. like, quote unquote, genetically superior in this way. And mm -hmm. this made them more desirable um, laborers than um a European that you'd bring over, he'd get sick for six months and then might die. Right. So yeah, malaria was uh, one of the reasons for the uh, slave trade. Yeah, that's fascinating. My initial point in the question was mm -hmm. that disease has played a way more significant role in the rise and fall of nations and people groups than, than I think we give it credit for. And you mentioned in the book that malaria played a pretty large role in you know, and what work, what we have called the revolutionary war yeah. and that the British troops, you know, in Virginia and parts of the East coast were just, um, really struggling under yeah. malaria. Yeah. If you have Vivex, eventually, you know, if you have the seasoning process, as I talked about, you build up a, an, an acquired immunity to it. You can still get sick, but you get less sick. Um, whereas if the first time you get it, yeah. And so the British troops would come typically from northern um, England, where the, where it was uncommon. And they would and they would be there's a whole southern strategy that the idea was that the, this, the British strategy was to take their troops. And they thought that the um, planters in you know the Carolinas and Georgia and, and so forth were 
basically loyal. And so they were, they planned to split the um, colonies. This is during the, the Revolutionary War by creating, you know, this, this taking half of the, the colonies and make it, you know, restoring them into the fold of Britain. And what happened is they took all their guys over there and they all got sick. And um, Cornwallis, who was the general, eventually fled to the Tidewater in, um, in, in, in Virginia because his army was collapsing around him. Unfortunately, he fled to the most malarial area in, in the entire original 13 colonies. And wow. so th- 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 he had to surrender. He had nobody mm-hmm. left to fight with. <laughs> That's wild. I'm curious. I'm looking for a way to kind of wrap up our conversation. But one of the things I did want to ask you about you have you've you've been a, a science writer, and and have probably written about some of these topics. You know, from a little bit of, from a from somebody who was not trained inside of the world of say rangeland ecology and natural resource management. Um, what? Maybe what perceptions and ideas about natural resource management have you thought through or encountered or, um, you know, worked on in researching and writing this book and and potentially others? In rangeland ecology and forestry and all these sort of management disciplines, um, you know, there's traditions of research and, um, you know, many of which come from um, from the Europeans, you know, forestry originally was uh, developed in, in, in Germany and also by um, English people who are trying to maintain things in, in India. And mm-hmm. they have been applied in the name of certain goals, like, um, you know, for forestry, maximize uh, board timber. Board foot production. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, board foot production for, you know, equivalent for, you know, maximize. Uh, and the, and they're extremely effective at, at this. I don't want to in any way do this. The, pr- the problem sure. is that uh, conditions are changing now. And we are also asking um, for uh, managers to think about different goals as, as well. Um, it's one thing to ask a, a forester to maximize board foot production, but if that inadvertently ends up maximizing wildfires, <laughs> you know, you, you have to start saying, wait a minute here, we need to start having more a complicated, more a different and more complicated set of goals. Cause so we certainly want timber, right. but we also want to, you know, stop these wildfires. And so, um, and I think this is happening throughout, um, you know, broadly speaking, agriculture where, uh, this, the changing situations that we are in are forcing people to reconsider both what their goals are and the means of um, a- accomplishing them. Um, you know, if the Colorado River runs out of water, um, the kind of agriculture that we've been um, thinking about in the Central Valley, which has been enormously productive, has been a tremendous boon um, to you know, the entire world, um, but it's going to have to be rethought. And um, it's not a slam on anybody to to say that the methods of the past aren't going to aren't going to work any aren't, aren't going to work anymore. Um, and but it is a problem if people are imprisoned by their own training and their own traditions and find it hard to respond um, to these new circumstances, and these new demands. 
I, I, right. I don't know if that's, uh, is that at all sense? It makes sense to you. It does. Yeah. The, the, we're, yeah, it's hard. To, you don't know what you don't know. It's hard to think outside of your yeah. own boxes and by their nature, we're usually unaware of the bounds of the box and it's hard to think outside of it. Sort of like this right. idea of the, you know, the Central Americans, <clears throat> Indians using, you know, what I would see as a more <clears throat> innovative form of polyculture. There's, yeah. Those are interesting ideas and we just don't, we don't, we can't get there. It's hard to imagine what's outside of the room that we're in. Right. And, you know, and partly this is because, um, you know, funding in research universities has, you know, goes down a certain path, you know, for, for um, agriculture, you know, there's, there's statistics. I, I forget what it is. It's something like 90% of the research goes into a small number of cereals and potatoes and, you know, a couple of other crops. And mm -hmm. what that means is that, uh, research into new systems is very difficult. And, you know, here we are in a, in a place like Sonora, which is running out of water and has been growing wheat there. That's where Borlaug developed is, is wheat. Um, you know, until last year, I believe there is no researchers at the University of Sonora who are able to investigate silvopastoral systems where you are mm -hmm. combining cattle and trees and using the, the fodder from the trees to promote the cattle. This is a traditional system that's been long in use in, in, in West Africa and um, has been done by some indigenous groups, um, you know, sort of on, on their own and is at least a possible, um, you know, response to climate change. Um, you know, but it doesn't fit in any holes. There's too many environmentalists who see all cattle as bad. Right? Mm -hmm. There's uh, too many farmers who say, wait a minute, I don't want to deal with growing trees. I don't know how to do that. And there's, there's too many researchers who's, who say, I can't research this because I can't get funded for it. And mm -hmm. so you have everybody um, in their own silos. And then, you know, and to be fair, on the social scientist side, there are too many uh, researchers who don't understand that this sort of system that they're they're studying could be applied in different ways in different um different places and aren't reaching across barriers boundaries themselves yeah i think that's a, a really important point in fact the society for range management uh, has their annual meeting coming up in february in boise idaho and one of the main themes is working across borders geographic borders disciplinary borders you know <laughs> personality differences but i think yeah. you were getting at you know one of these big one of these big ideas we i think we one of the boxes that we get stuck in is that there's we see this uh, dichotomy between agriculture and wildlands you know intensive land use versus extensive land use and we see these things as being mutually exclusive at least we have Yes. because our ideas about agriculture have primarily been what we talked about earlier a, a fenced tilled monoculture that is intensively managed and has a lot of inputs and likely some blending of the two in a way where it might be difficult to identify an area as being either agriculture or wildland is is a useful concept and and I've said before on here this is one of the things that intrigues me about rangelands based livestock production in that uh, you, because it relies, because it's only profitable if you do not have a large number of inputs, uh, the way to be profitable is to 
you know, maximize or optimize the diversity and the productivity of a naturally occurring plant community. And, but that's largely been restricted to what I'm calling rangelands-based livestock production. Uh, but it, it seems that maybe some of those barriers are, you know, being not removed, but uh, poked through in a way that I hope we're beginning to think about food production in a way that's perhaps, you know, more diverse than that. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, the kind of industrial monoculture that we have has been enormously successful, um, you know, and it's the reason that the percentage of people who are hungry in the world has declined so dramatically since the 1970s. And this is a mm -hmm. huge accomplishment. Um, and one should not in any way dismiss or, or minimize it. But um, at the same time, in the world that we live in that is based on that, that success, agriculture is facing a new set of demands um, and a new set of circumstances and uh, ideas. We should be careful not to throw away any, any good ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're willing, I wanted to give you just a minute to talk about some of your other books. Uh, one of the ones that I'm thinking of is, is Noah's Choice. I haven't read it yet, but uh, this was an older book, I think published in 95, about the future of endangered species. Uh, and I, if, if we, I happen to be a, a book lover, and so I would like to stimulate people to read more books because I think it does more uh, to generate ideas and help us be creative than reading the news. Uh, what was Noah's Choice about? Well, it's about biodiversity and um, this Id the idea of the biodiversity crisis. Um, and um, the so to some extent, um, what it argued was that uh, the biodiversity crisis is um, is both real and overblown. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, and that the estimates of, you know, how many species are lost and so forth that were so prevalent, um, by the time the book was written, um, in the 1990s, I like to imagine that we've changed a little bit since then, um, are, are generated by this thing called the species area curve that it's kind of suspect. Um, and we argued why it was, uh, these, these, these estimates are, are suspect. And we said, in fact, uh, the losses and extinctions are concentrated in certain types of places in certain types of areas and that um, but however the funding for um, biodiversity is which is also concentrated in certain areas in no way matches or coincides with the actual threats and so um, and that's because in the United States we were primarily focused on North America um, it's driven by lawsuits um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, take a you know, huge amount of money was, for example, spent on the spotted owl and the, you know, which is a subspecies. It's extremely close genetically to, um, uh, the owls, you know, further, further South. And it was used as a kind of cover for old growth forests, um, to try and, uh, protect, um, old growth forests. But if you're mm -hmm. worried about biodiversity, uh, that money should probably be spent on trying to learn how to manage those forests instead of, instead of letting them burn up, which is what we're doing, doing, doing now. Um, right. and 
uh, we should also focus on the fact that the great majority of species under immediate threat live on islands or island-like areas um, and, and are also hmm. lower, lower trophic levels, so that there's a, a, a tremendous mismatch there. Um, and so we argued that you know, these are, are, are real. Um, we also argued that the reasons for preserving most species aren't practical in the sense that they're always sort of saying, well, if you kill this species off, you know, what if it, what if it has a cure for cancer, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, most species don't. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's not like we're want to protect whales because if we didn't, we think that they'll have a cure of cancer or if whales disappear, the seas will fill with krill. Um, We want to protect whales because they're beautiful. Um, oh, right. <laughs> they're, right. they're, they're, they're wonderful. Um, and they're intrinsically valuable. Yeah. Right. And few get very sort of embarrassed about talking about these, uh, kinds of, kinds of things. Um, and so that was what our attempt was to say is that if we actually talked honestly about these, we might, we might do a better job. And, um, and, uh, that would, and that would include the fact that, some species are going to go extinct <laughs> and um, it's very difficult to imagine how that could not happen. And we should think about which ones we want to preserve because it, it's right now pretending to preserve them all is going to lead to much greater losses than um, admitting that we don't, we, we have a budget. No, that's really interesting. I look forward to reading that. I, I think that you pointed out a pretty interesting, uh, I'm not sure if paradox is the right word, but we, we say we want, diversity and what we usually mean by that is botanical diversity but you tend to have much much higher biodiversity of all kinds not just plant diversity in these mid serial stages yes but then our response to problems with natural resource management is to apply management that tries to push everything as fast as possible to a later serial stage which is much less diverse usually in flora and fauna one of the examples, yes. I think it's a good one, is Western Red Cedar Forest in British Columbia. When I was at the University of Idaho uh, in the late 90s, we had a symposium with some research about fire and salmon populations and forests. And somebody was giving the example of a you know, Western Red Cedar Forest that had not burned in six or 700 years. And so you have, you have essentially a monoculture of Western Red Cedar with almost nothing in the understory. And uh, the interesting point from this talk was that the the streams that were running through that area were also largely sterile mm-hmm. because there was no, <clears throat> uh, there were no alloxanous sources of organic matter to feed the macroinvertebrates, microinvertebrates that would then feed the fish that would, so you had, you had this uh, biological desert of a, of a sorts, which, is even a, probably a bad. That's a misnomer because uh, often deserts are, are pretty diverse. Right. Anyway, you had a, you had a situation where there was very very little diversity as a result of you know letting succession move all the way to what truly was a climax plant community, and that really isn't what we want in most places. Although it's useful to have that somewhere. Sure. Yes. Exactly. And very typically, what people do is maintain patch ecosystems where, you know, you have multiple successional states in different parts of the landscape and, um, you know, done right, 
you end up with much more diversity. <laughs> and um, this is one of the things actually very similarly that the people in the Klamath are complaining about is that these uh, Douglas fir monocultures that replaced um, the, you know, oak um, hmm. heavy forests are there are much less good for uh, salmon than um, than the uh, what, what, what they have now, which are, you know, largely put in place by the Forest Service because Douglas fir is, uh, you know, a fabulous tree for in terms of board foot. And it's, it's a beautiful tree. <laughs> sure. um, it's a wonderful tree, but uh, they say there's too much of it, <laughs> you know, and so if you want salmon, you know, the Forest Service needs to um, and the land managers for the state need to start actually saying we are going to accept some restrictions on the amount of board feet that we're going to get per per hectare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just one more comment. Then I want to ask you about the your other book, the more uh, recent one, The Wizard and the Prophet. You know, regarding the boxes that we get stuck in, you know, we in the Western world, uh, I, I would say, have instrumentalized all of the what's out there you know we we tend to see our real view sees all of natural resources and even the term resources gives it away we we see it as stuff that we're to impose our will upon to make it serve our purposes as opposed to something that has a value in and of itself and uh you know because i live in that i'm not even I would mm -hmm. have to take some time to try to articulate, you know, what the other worldview would have been of the people that lived here. I mean, to some extent, they also were doing the same thing, imposing their will on it, but uh, with a lot fewer, the different kinds of tools than than we have been able to use. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, what do, what do you um, mean by resource in 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 some sense? Um, you know, they were attempting to create uh, landscapes that would both sustain them and that would be a pleasure to live in. And right. I mean, that's a gross generalization, but I think it's, you know, basically true. And that's different from um, saying, I want to create something that has maximum productivity. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, also they were... Um, not hooked up to global markets in the way that we are. And that's a, been a consistent um, problem for us that we're not good at, which mm -hmm. is, you know, something like um, acai becomes popular. And acai is this palm, is fruit from this palm. It's delicious. Uh, it's eaten in, in Brazil. It becomes a superfood. It's available in all the markets here. And people in Brazil have been, you know, perfectly happy to just gather it. Um, now you start saying, whoa, I want to supply all of Western Europe. So you end up clearing the land and we're <laughs> doing an acai monoculture. And right. all of it is um, sensible, each individual step, but you end up with something that's uh, really ecologically uh, um, problematic and difficult to sustain in the, in the, in the Brazilian context because of mm -hmm. this enormous demand from Europe or, or California or wherever you're, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're talking about. And this mm -hmm. is just a, a problem that we, we have is maintaining a kind of balance like this. Mm -hmm. uh, your more recent book, The Wizard and the Prophet, what is that about? Well, um, it's I, as I said, I'm a journalist, and I've been you know writing on environmental and uh, 
you know, scientific issues for 30 or 40 years. And when I would talk to researchers or activists or politicians or, or who have you about uh, things like, you know, how are we going to feed everybody? How are we going to get fresh water to everybody? How are we going to get energy to everybody? How are we going to deal with climate change? I realized that their answers fell into, you know, typically fell into two sort of broad types of response. They're like different ends of a spectrum. People would be on one end or the, towards one end or towards the other. And um, I started calling them at least mentally wizards and prophets. Um, actually, I initially called them druids and engineers, but nobody knows what a druid is. So now I call them wizards and prophets. <laughs> and and um, a wizard, I thought it was a techno wizard. And they, these people typically believe that science and technology properly applied will let us produce our way out of our um, environmental dilemmas. Um, and the model for that is, uh, you know, there's constantly talk about it. It's a guy I've mentioned him even in this uh and in, in this conversation we're having is Norman Borlaug. Right. Um, and he, for those of you who don't know, um, he's a guy I think everybody should know about. And he is the main figure in what's uh, been called the green revolution, which is the combination of, you know, um, high yielding seeds, high intent, you know, uh, high intensity um, uh, fertilizer and um, irrigation you put them all together um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and it doubled, tripled, even quadrupled grain yields in, in much of the world and is had a huge impact in reducing the amount of hunger in, in the world. And mm-hmm. the prophets um, typically believe something quite different, which is that um, the world is governed by ecological laws and these laws have limits, and we transgress these limits to our peril. And you, the limits have all different names, you know, carrying capacity, um, planetary boundaries, ecological limits. You know, you, you've heard this idea, and this mm-hmm. is the sort of founding idea of the environmental movement, you know, that if, if we um, ex- go past what nature allows, um, we're in trouble. And um, that's what we're constantly uh, doing. And the person who put that together is not well known, um, but his name is William Vogt. And he's the sort of first guy to put all this idea together. And this is, a, you know, if you like the, the reigning ideology of the environmental movement or something like that. And the environmental movement is, this, is the only successful ideology that emerged out of the 20th century. And so you, um, he's a, an enormously important figure. But also, if you think about it, these two answers you know, the wizard's answer to produce more and the prophet's answer to stay within limits. They're kind of the opposite of each other. And um, that struck me as there's this tension in there and you see it rippling through environmental disputes for the last 60 years. And that's what I mm-hmm. wanted to, that's what I wrote about was this tension um, between wizards and prophets. And it's also a sort of a vest pocket biography of, of vote and, uh, and, and, mm. and Borlaug. Great. I actually have ordered those and I'm looking forward to reading that as well. I I think those are some pretty important and similar ideas to what we've been talking about. And I think even I went to the school at the University of Idaho, which sits in the middle of the, the Palouse. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a good example of this tension because we, we were wildly successful in producing a lot of wheat. Uh, but we also, in that part of the country, uh, in fact, in soils textbooks, it's often mentioned as the example of uh, a, an environment and a farming system that produced the highest rates of soil erosion 
in the world. Yeah. Which obviously that can't happen for very long before you run out of dirt and now you can't produce wheat anymore. Then right. thankfully we've made some progress on that, but it, but it does highlight uh, the, the extreme of the, of the, the wizard's way. Right. And that's a great, you know, the, and so there, there's this tension because the wizards quite properly say, wait a minute, we need to feed everybody, <laughs> you know, sure. and we need to make people as well off as, po- as possible. And to which the prophets say, yeah, but if you keep doing this, we're all going to be worse off. Well, I think we'll, I think we'll close it off there. I think that's a good conclusion. And I sincerely hope that listeners will read these books and that that will cause them to think about how we can synthesize these ideas into ways that feed people and don't uh, destroy our ecosystems. Charles, I really, really appreciate your time and I have thoroughly enjoyed your books. It's one thing to put information together, but it's another thing to make it readable and, and you have done that really well. Well, thank you. That's That was the goal and uh, I hope very much that uh, people who will think about these things because there are all these issues that are going to be ever more important in the decades to come. I agree with you. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.